It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Whitney Lordson. Today happens to be Halloween. (laughs) And on this show, I don't go out of my way to do themed episodes like I did at the very beginning. Like I think the first year of the show when Jason was the co-host with me, we tried doing all these thematic episodes. (laughs) If you go back, probably in the first 100 episodes we did, we would actually pull up a calendar. We'd pick random days of the month or the year and just talk about it. (laughs) And I remember sometimes it would be fun and sometimes it would be kind of lame. Well, I was looking at the upcoming episodes and I thought, you know what? I will talk about my experience in Salem, Massachusetts for this episode. I just went there yesterday on October 5th. So I'm recording on the 6th of October and batching some episodes before I leave for my next cross-country trip back to Los Angeles. I've been wanting to go to Salem, Massachusetts for quite some time. And growing up in Massachusetts, it's a big surprise that I'd never been there. It's one of those places I feel like I might have been and just don't remember. Although that seemed kind of implausible given that it has such a big cultural story behind it. You go with preconceived notions, or at least I did. I think of Salem as this town where the witch trials happened and thought maybe it'd be like kind of spooky. So (laughs) I'm going to share with you today a little bit behind the scenes of what it was actually like for me and maybe talk about the history of Salem because going there inspired me to look it up. So in real time, I'm going to pull up some data if you have not ever looked it up yourself or don't remember beyond school or just associate it with movies like Hocus Pocus. What else? Like, I don't know, any witch-related content out there. Speaking of Hocus Pocus, that is part of my story here and a really sweet part of it because Hocus Pocus 2 came out, I think, at the end of September of this year. And I felt more compelled to watch it than I thought I was going to. I like Sarah Jessica Parker. I find her an interesting actress to watch. I really like Disney. I don't necessarily go out of my way to watch Disney movies or shows, or I'm not like a Disney adult. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but it's kind of a subtle interest of mine, not like some people who get really passionate about Disney. I don't put myself in that bucket. But the marketing perhaps was just really decent for Hocus Pocus too, and it made me want to see it. So... I had made plans to go to Salem with my friend who lives in Massachusetts named Elizabeth. And she was a guest on this show actually at... I can't remember if it was the beginning of this year or the end of 2021. She and I met through being vegan keto eaters. (laughs) That's the way I was eating for a long time. I still dabbled in the keto diet. And both of us have written cookbooks on vegan ketogenic foods. And so she came on the show. 
it's one of my favorite episodes, actually, if you want to take a listen to it. It also happens to be one of the most popular episodes of the show that I've ever done. And you can get a feel for what Elizabeth is like and what our friendship is like. We met for the first time in Massachusetts, also in another historical area, because Massachusetts just has so much history and places you can go to experience history and learn about it. We were walking through, I believe it was in Concord. It might have been Lexington, but somewhere around there, there are all these trails that you can walk on and see these old buildings and just be part of the beautiful nature around there. And I believe that was the very first time we met in person. And since then, we've been to Walden Pond. We went there in 2021. Like doing historical Massachusetts things has been part of our friendship. However, another thing that we did this year was to watch both Hocus Pocus movies and we did them backwards. So we got together a few days ago and she came over to my parents' house. We set up my sister's projector, which is really awesome. I'm going to put this in the show notes because I became obsessed with this projector. It's a little mini portable projector that you can project any media onto any surface, although it works really well when it's in a dark space. It's not really good when there's light out. We definitely figured this out because (laughs) we started trying to watch Hocus Pocus 2 at like three o'clock in the afternoon and we had to cover the windows in the room that we are in, my childhood bedroom specifically, because the light actually really impacts the projector. So if you are thinking about getting a projector, I highly recommend doing some research because that was the only drawback to this one I have, which I think is Kodak. I'll put the link to the exact one my sister owns in case you're wondering. Because aside from that little challenge, it's an awesome little device. It's tiny. It's a different shape than a phone, but maybe like a mini hard drive is a good way to describe it. Square, super lightweight. It's designed to be able to bring anywhere with you. The battery life I heard isn't great. So I always plug it in and we set it up. I put up an old white sheet, hung it up on the wall and we projected Hocus Pocus 2 onto there. And it was so fun. My childhood bedroom has two twin beds in it. So Elizabeth laid on one, I laid on another. We had a bowl of vegan keto candy. We kind of made it like to feel as if we just returned from trick-or-treating. We were very intentional about this. And we had our favorite right now, which is Evolved Chocolate. Their new white chocolate brownie batter cups are to die for. I'm being very particular about my language here to make it Halloween-themed. I kind of wish this episode was coming out pre-Halloween because that's a big recommendation I would have to pass out or to enjoy. If you wanted to have some Halloween festivities, this is a candy that I would highly recommend. But I eat it year-round. I love Evolve's hazelnut butter cups. Oh my gosh. All of this stuff is so great. And the fact that it's low sugar is incredible. I think they might use monk fruit, but I'm not 100% sure. It's just very well formulated. So we had that. We also had a plethora of items I brought back from the Natural Products Expo, which I did a whole separate video on or episode of the show on a few weeks back. And I can't remember all of the other brands, but they may come to me. So it was just fun, you know, like adults hanging out, watching a Disney movie in a childhood bedroom with a projector and a bowl of delicious plant-based low sugar candy and treats. 
it was awesome. And that was so nourishing. So maybe I'll inspire you to do something similar. You don't even have to have kids or be around children to have that childlike experience. And we loved Hocus Pocus too. I was amazed. If you've been on the fence about watching it, I think it's really worth a shot. There have been mixed reactions to it. And I can kind of see why. I mean, it's certainly not like the original. And speaking of the original, we ended up watching the original as part of our Salem experience, which I'll get to later on in this episode. But yeah, after watching the contrast between Hocus Pocus 2 and the original Hocus Pocus, which came out in 1993, can't believe it's been that long because I distinctly remember it as a kid. But I actually think Hocus Pocus, the original, is a better film. But Hocus Pocus 2 was really funny. It had a great pace. It was very enjoyable. To me, the biggest disappointment is that it wasn't filmed in Salem like the original. It was actually filmed in Rhode Island. And I guess they did that because the director preferred Rhode Island for some reason. And I don't know if I mentioned this on a previous episode, but I want to mention now, speaking of Rhode Island that in Providence, there is a phenomenal vegan restaurant called Plant City that I went to and it blew my mind. So if I've mentioned it before, it's worth mentioning it again because it's one of the best restaurants I've been out to on the East Coast recently. So after we watched Hocus Pocus 2, we planned out our day to go to Salem. It happened to be a very rainy day, which was completely fine because it was actually still on the warm side. So I didn't have to like completely bundle up. I did get to wear my new favorite shoes, another plug, not sponsored, but maybe I'll use an affiliate link for them for Vessies. I got this shoe brand because I kept seeing ads for it, I think on TikTok and throughout social media. They're 100% waterproof shoes, all vegan. And they look pretty cool. So I got a pair of them a few months ago and have worn them off and on. And I actually now look forward to when it's raining because I feel really cool walking around in my waterproof shoes. And they're black. So they match like this fall Halloween style outfit I had with like maroon pants and black shirt. And I didn't wear much else like to dress up. I'm not really a big costume person. Elizabeth asked me about this yesterday about like some of my favorite Halloween outfits or what I like to dress up as. And I realized that Halloween actually gives me anxiety because (laughs) I never have a great idea for a costume, but I really want to. There's something almost like a FOMO feeling that I get with Halloween where I feel all this pressure to find a cool outfit, but it's too much for me. My brain does not work well in that context. And the years that I've tried really hard to come up with a cool Halloween costume have just felt so frustrating. My creativity does not span clothing. (laughs) So I look back on like all the weird stuff I've put on. There have been some huge fails. A few years ago, I think it was 2019... I can't remember if it was before or after the pandemic. I feel like it was 2019. I got together with a few friends and one of my friends did my face makeup and it just looked awful. It was not her fault whatsoever. It was mine. I think I showed like some reference and we didn't have the right colors. 
And like, I didn't even realize how bad the face makeup looked until I looked back on the pictures and I was mortified. That's part of it too. Like, not only do I struggle to come up with a cool costume, when I see photos of what I look like, I experience shame. So <laughs> it's been almost traumatizing. I think Halloween would feel best for me if somebody else could pick out a cool look for me and do it all fine. But maybe moving forward, I'm not going to try. There's also that pressure, for me at least, like if you're invited to a Halloween party, there's part of me that's like, wow, that sounds fun. I want to go to a Halloween party. But walking in there and having everyone ask, oh, what's your costume? And then everyone's comparing their costumes to each other, like who's wearing the best ones. There's all that competition. or if you feel that pressure to find something and then you don't feel satisfied with what you picked out, like all of that just sounds so awful the more I describe it. And I'm really hoping that I don't get invited to anything Halloween related. But again, there's that FOMO. Like even as I share that out loud, I'm thinking to myself, but Halloween parties sound so fun. If you didn't know this about me, I don't really like parties that much in general because I get bored very quickly. Or maybe I just get super anxious. I haven't fully been able to identify my emotions yet. But generally, I like the idea of a party more than I like actually going. (laughs) And I'll show up, walk around whatever space I'm in, and then be ready to leave in like five or 10 minutes. And I often end up going to parties with people that want to stay much longer than me. And so I'll stay longer for them, but feel really unhappy. Or I'm like trying to fake being happy. Ugh. And the small talk at parties is awful. So maybe I'll sprinkle in more Halloween (laughs) memories as positive as possible. But yeah, it's kind of interesting. Anyway, so going back to Salem, there was this one girl walking around with incredible pants. She said she got them from Target. And now that I'm talking this through, I could see myself going to Target to get these pants and make them my Halloween outfit if I do end up doing anything else Halloween related. But uh, they were these black pants with kind of like metallic orange pumpkin designs on them. And they were super flattering, at least on her body. She was wearing tall black boots with them. And we ended up going to talk to her underneath her umbrella that she was carrying around in the rain. She had this really cool witch hat on and she just looked cool. There were a number of different people that were semi-dressed up, but because it's early October, we didn't see like the full Halloween experience in Salem. Apparently, as it gets closer to Halloween, Salem becomes really crowded and super festive. And even that I kept thinking about yesterday, like, wow... I like the energy of a big holiday experience like that. But the overwhelm I feel from crowds is so intense. And that was something interesting about being in Salem this time of year, which is after, I believe, October 1st, or maybe starting October 1st to the end of October every year, Salem has... They call it like October happenings or something like that. And so the whole city starts to like shift into the Halloween spirit. And they set up lines to get into the stores. I don't know if this is a pandemic thing or if it was just a space 
related thing, but so many of the stores in Salem, you had to wait in line to go inside and look around. In general, I don't love super touristy shops, but I also felt like the pressure to experience some of that, which is interesting. I feel this when I travel anywhere where I want to go into the stores and consider buying something, even though I don't really need it or want anything. It just feels like part of the travel experience, which is kind of interesting. I'll pause here to summarize why I'm so thrilled to have Zencaster as a sponsor of this show. Whether you're a listener who may feel interested in how podcasters make things happen, or perhaps you're a podcaster yourself, you're working on a podcast, you want to improve a current podcast, you're thinking about starting a podcast, I highly recommend Zencaster. One of the many things I like about them is that as an all-in-one web-based solution, they make it so easy to do post-production. And that's the process in which you're mixing your tracks, you're combining audio and video, perhaps you're uh, normalizing loudness, which may not make sense if you haven't done this before, but it really just makes your podcast sound good. Maybe you want to reduce some hum, other enhancements to your show, make it sound like it was recorded in a studio. You can do all of that in Zencaster. And I find this super fascinating. You know, I remember before I started this show, I was like, how do podcasters do things? This is so overwhelming. And when I found Zencaster, it was a huge relief because prior to that, I was doing it in this very manual piece of software and I was confused. I didn't know how all of the bells and whistles worked. Zencaster just makes everything so simple. There's a ton of tools there, but it's really easy. And this is great for someone who wants to do it all themselves. So maybe I've planted a seed in your head and you're thinking about using Zencaster or perhaps recommending it to someone else, even if you're not a podcaster yourself. I want you to have the same easy experience. So go to Zencaster.com to check it all out. They have a free version if you want to use some of the paid features, you can get 30% off your first three months of that. Go to Zencaster.com slash pricing and enter the promo code WELLEVATOR, W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R. I've linked to this in the show notes for this episode, as well as in the description to make it super easy for you to share your story like I do. I went into a quote like witchy store that had all sorts of themes, spiritual things. And Elizabeth and I were laughing because we both subscribed to the goddess provisions box. And we said like, wow, it feels like a goddess provision store. You know, they have crystals and aromatherapy and herbs and all sorts of cute things to put around your house. And in hindsight, I'm like, just subscribe to Goddess Provisions. You do not need to go into one of these stores and it probably would save you a lot of money. <laughs> but the store was cool. Like a lot of them have really neat decorations inside. And then if you go off the beaten path in Salem, much like any other tourist city, there are stores that are less expensive and have less touristy feeling trinkets and odds and ends to get. There was some really cool clothing stores we went into. And I felt tempted to buy some items. 
but I'm trying not to overbuy things, not just because I'm traveling, but just becoming very aware of how I'm spending my money and what things I'm accumulating. So I left Salem without purchasing anything beyond a meal. And I didn't even purchase that because Elizabeth wanted to treat me to a meal at one of our favorite Massachusetts restaurants called Life Alive. I haven't been into that restaurant in so long, but it was neat because they have almost the exact same menu from what I remember. And the atmosphere doesn't seem like it's changed. I've never been to the one in Salem, but they have a few locations across Eastern Massachusetts. And it's just a lovely health forward restaurant with dishes for pretty much any health desire or dietary preferences and needs. So of course, vegan, gluten-free, dairy-free, nut-free, and maybe even soy-free. I'm not sure. But they have all these delicious bowls and salads and coffee drinks, and they have a very laid back atmosphere. It reminds me a lot of Cafe Gratitude for those of you who have been to one of those restaurants. Just really great formulations and they put a lot of intention into their meals. And it's also really relaxed. Cafe Gratitude isn't quite like that. For those who don't know what Cafe Gratitude is, it's a well-known restaurant in California and they have locations in Los Angeles. I don't know if they still have them in San Francisco, but that's where the restaurant started. And it was known as being kind of this like hippie raw food restaurant. And now it's become this high-end kind of posh Los Angeles vegan restaurant. So it has a bit of like, how do I put it? Like you feel like you almost have to dress to impress there. That's how I feel at least. You're not really supposed to because Cafe Gratitude is, is meant to be like this organic, natural, like everyone's accepted type of atmosphere. But to contrast that to Life Alive, which actually feels that way, everyone's kind of keeping to themselves at Life Alive. Like it's not a see and be seen place. Cafe Gratitude has felt to me in Los Angeles, like you want to show up looking your best because you never know who you're going to run into there type of feeling, which also gives me anxiety. That's probably why I haven't been there in so long. (laughs) Anyways, Life Alive was a really nice experience. They have this bowl I've been getting for literally over 10 years. I remember distinctly going there in 2012 and earlier. Oh, yeah. And I think I went there a lot in 2012 now that I think about it. It's called the Swami Bowl and it's got curried rice and raisins, I think, in it. They usually put almonds in, but I didn't get any almonds and broccoli, maybe carrots. I added some avocado and it's just got this delicious dressing. It's perfectly balanced. I've tried to make it at home, but I haven't been able to replicate it. And it was neat to go there with Elizabeth because obviously rice is not considered keto, but both of us are very mindful, as we talked about in the podcast episode we did together, that we're not incredibly strict. Elizabeth is more focused on the keto diet than I am right now in my life, but she still will eat rice and she still will have other high-carb foods. And I remember when I first met her that that was such a relieving experience because someone who has created a whole career around vegan keto, to know that even she doesn't eat super strict was really relieving to me. And I tend to feel pressure around other people about how I eat. And just to have that relaxing 
accepting vibe around food was really nice. Before we went to Salem, we were in a different part of Massachusetts that day for lunch called West Concord. It's one of my favorite places to visit. It's not too far from where my parents live or where she lives, Elizabeth lives. And there's this lovely market called Deborah's Natural Gourmet. And they recently expanded their space to open up this wonderful deli. They always had a deli, but this is now like its own building. And they have indoor seating and even more options than they used to. So they have phenomenal soups and salads and sushi and baked goods. So we met up there. I got this immunity soup, a kale salad, and a tikka masala tofu bowl that was unbelievable. And that's about an hour's drive from Salem. So if you're thinking about going to Salem at some point, it might not make sense for the itinerary, but I highly recommend checking out Deborah's sometime when you're in Massachusetts. And if you live here and you've never been there, it's a must go if you like natural foods like I do. So anyways, back to Salem. We go to Life Alive, sit by the window, just watching the rain come down or people watching inside the restaurant. It was really lovely. Then we left and we walked around and there's all these brick buildings. And I think the streets were cobblestone, but now I'm not even 100% sure. It just feels like an old city. It feels historical and not in a fake way. Like they've retained so much. In fact, some of the buildings from the 1600s are still standing and there's old cemeteries. And they did a really nice job of incorporating the touristy things, you know, there's tours and there's museums and the gift shops, but they were very well integrated into the city, which was nice. We just didn't realize this, but because of the timing of our meal at Life Alive, we actually missed the opportunity to go into some of the museums before they closed. This is another piece of advice that a lot of stores and museums close by 5 or 6 p.m., And we wanted to be there at night to kind of experience the nighttime feel of the city. But there's not much going on after 6 p.m. there, at least not that early in the month of October. So that was a slight letdown. However, we decided to watch the original Hocus Pocus movie in my car while parked on a side street next to the big Salem Park. I don't know if that's the right term for it, but I'll pull it up when I get to the historical side of Salem. My car has a huge screen in it with a connection to Disney Plus. So I, if you want to know the technical details of how it works, you can tether the internet from your phone. So you turn on your personal hotspot from your phone and it connects to my car. And there's a Disney Plus integration with my car, which is very cool. And we just sat in there we brought more snacks. We had the Eden Evolved cups again. And Elizabeth, oh, she bought some of the Catalina Crunch cookies, which are kind of like an Oreo cookie, but vegan and keto. And we sat in the car and, and snacked away again. We brought some blankets and pillows and made another cozy experience. And the rain's coming down and people are walking by. And speaking of parking, I always love to give insight on that. I was actually surprised because when we 
watch the movie, we moved out of the paid parking lot, which was not super expensive. I think it was like $1.25 an hour to park there. We moved the car, we found a free parking space. So just word to the wise, if you're trying to understand Salem, I don't know if you have to pay for parking in a lot like we did originally. But parking was actually quite easy. Getting around there was easy. There was a little bit of traffic earlier in the evening. And there were a surprising amount of people walking around. I thought early October, it was a Wednesday, rainy day, that there weren't going to be a lot of people around. But there certainly were. It was pretty surprising. And I can't even imagine what a night on a weekend or closer to Halloween would be like. So I had a lovely time. My only regret is that I would have loved to have gone into the Salem Witch Museum. (laughs) Elizabeth has been in there and she said they have like animatronics and they recreate some of the history of the witches and the trials through the animatronics. And that sounded really intriguing. They also have another museum there called the Peabody Essex Museum, which looked very appealing. And you can even see some of the buildings from Hocus Pocus if you walk around. So we passed by the the house from that movie. And that was kind of cool to see. But other than that, I feel like there's still a lot to explore. And I'm considering my time there to be my first time, not my only time. So I'm going to pull up some Salem historical information. And maybe I will start... On their website, why not? So Salem.org is the official website and they have a history section. It's actually kind of cool. It is laid out at the top of the website through the different years. So they have 1600s, 1700s, 1800s, 1900s, and 2000s. So Salem was founded in 1926 by a group of immigrants from Cape Ann. And the settlement was first titled... Namkeg? I don't know if that's right. But the settlers preferred to call it Salem, which is derived from the Hebrew word for peace. I did not know that. And I wonder if Salem is the correct pronunciation. That's really interesting. So the first congregational society was founded by Puritan pioneers, 1629. And In 1637, the first Salem ship sail to the West Indies went to trade salted cod. This is so fascinating. I've never been that into history, but looking back, I mean, this is so long ago. It's really wild. Their first cemetery, which was the one that I went to, was built in 1637. And that cemetery was really interesting because they had all of these markings on the outside of it from some of the people that were hanged in these trials. So let's get to that interesting history. This feels like a good time to pause the episode and thank one of the sponsors, Athletic Greens, because it ties into this idea of doing your best, taking care of yourself so that you can live longer and stronger. There are so many benefits to including vitamins, minerals, probiotics to your diet and getting them from whole food sourced ingredients. This is one of the reasons I love AG1 powder. It is designed to be a blend of ingredients that support your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy recovery, focus, and aging. Sounds a little too good to be true. 
but it's all based on the latest science with constant product iterations and third-party testing. It's recommended by leading health experts. And it came from the founder's personal experience with gut issues. I've, of course, tried it myself. I love the flavor. I love how easy it is. It's convenient. You can travel with it. I mean, I can go on and on. They even have sustainability values. Uh, They're doing so much. And I have always felt good vibes from them. So that's why I've partnered with them over the last few months. And I'm also excited that they're offering something to you to make it really easy. Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of their immune-supporting vitamin D, which is this amazing liquid formulation I try to remember to take every day. And they're giving you five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash wellevator. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash W-E-L-L E-V-A-T-R. Don't worry, that's linked in the description and the show notes for this episode to make it super easy to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. The Salem Witch Trials began in 1692, which is the event that Salem is most known for. It was only in three months' time that 19 innocent people, 14 women and five men, were hanged. And one man was actually pressed to death. So in this time, the courts believe that the devil, spectral evidence, and teenage girl... Wait, what? This is interesting phrased. These trials ended when a governor disbanded the court after his wife was accused of being a witch herself. How interesting. Even this terminology, witch fascinates me. And I think there's a whole separate section on this website I'm going to go to. So I want to better understand what that's meant exactly. Because when you watch a movie like Hocus Pocus, you see this kind of like, I was going to say cosplay, but no, they're the exaggerated media versions of what a witch is. But when I mentioned something like goddess provisions, right, and people use terms like witchy, It's seen almost in a positive way. I mean, I perceive it to be, right, the spiritual side of it, the earth connection, the appreciation for taking care of ourselves. Like, I'm fascinated by how there's like the costume version of a witch, and then there's the spiritual side of being witchy or witch-like or interested in in all this. Then then we have movies like The Craft, which was one of my favorite movies growing up. I was so drawn to the magical side of it, like having powers, casting spells. And one thing I'm looking for now as I go through the history of Salem is what exactly was a witch back then. So in January 1692, the daughter and niece of Reverend Samuel Paris became ill and the village doctor was called in. His diagnosis of bewitchment put into motion the forces that would ultimately result in the hanging deaths of these people I mentioned. Some people also died in prison and the lives of many were changed for good. To understand, and I'm reading all this from the Salem.org website, to understand the events of the Salem witch trials, it is necessary to examine the times in which accusations of witchcraft occurred. There were the ordinary stresses of the 17th century life in the Massachusetts Bay Colony, a strong belief in the devil, 
fractions among Salem Village families and rivalry with nearby Salem town combined with a recent smallpox epidemic and the threat of attack by warring tribes created a fertile ground for fear and suspicion. And perhaps this is why this feels so interesting because here we are in a pandemic time. We have all sorts of war going on. We have rivalries. Like a lot of this stuff is still happening in its own way right now. And so it doesn't feel that far off. In fact, I would be willing to bet if I thought about this long enough or did some research that we have our own version of our witch trials happening right now as we live. So I think this is part of where like understanding the history helps us understand what's happening in life right now. But also, as I was saying that like this terminology about witches has changed over time. It has a whole different meaning. I want to make sure that my understanding of what happened in the 1600s is not just my current day understanding, if that makes sense. So anyways, going back to the history on this website, prisons were full of people that were tormented as the cause of their pain. That's interesting. And I guess 150 men and women were in these prisons and awaiting trial for a crime punishable by death, which was the practice of witchcraft. And so I don't even know how they're defining witchcraft. And let's see if they get into this. But Bridget Bishop of Salem was found guilty and hanged on June 10th, 1962. And then 13 women and five men from all stations of life followed her to the gallows on three successive hanging days. So this is such a short period of time. The belief in the power of the accused to use their invisible shapes of specters to torture their victims had sealed the fates of those tried by the court. The new court released those awaiting trial and pardoned those awaiting executions. And in fact, the Salem witch trials were over. In my head, or if I would have guessed before reading this, I thought that this went on way longer. So it also shows like how horrific things can happen in such short period of time. Oh, and here's an example of more current day history, the parallels between the Salem witch trials and more modern examples of witch hunting, like the McCarthy hearings of the 1950s are remarkable. As years passed, apologies were offered. Restitution was made to the victims' families. Historians and sociologists have examined this most complex episode in our history so that we may understand the issues of that era and view subsequent event with heightened awareness. That's really amazing. Salem.org links to another website, salemwitchmuseum.com, which talks about what a witch hunt is. When studying the history of witchcraft, it is important to understand that witchcraft was a crime created and imposed on innocent people. No individual actually had the power to cause hailstorms, spread mass disease, or fly through the night to a gathering of evil beings. This was a crime imposed on innocent people during times of mass fear and hysteria. While the legal prosecution of witchcraft came to an end in the 18th century, the pattern of behavior that caused witch hunts can be identified throughout history and in the modern day. Ooh, this is really fascinating to me. So the formula 
that they used is fear plus a trigger equals a scapegoat. A scapegoat is defined as a person who is unfairly or irrationally the object of blame. Wow. So if you go to the Salem Witch Museum, and this is the one that I wanted to go to, actually, they have a mission to give the public a voice to interact with the concept of a witch hunt. Fascinating. So you can go on this website, highly recommend it because this is really well laid out and it gets into the history of how all this worked back then. And on the website, it goes into a little bit more detail. So I mentioned how this daughter suddenly fell ill in 1962 She was making strange foreign sounds, huddling under furniture. And oh, there was a daughter and a niece. So both of them were making these sounds, hiding under furniture and clutching their heads. These symptoms were alarming and astonishing to their parents and neighbors. When neither prayer nor medicine succeeded in alleviating the girl's agony, the worried parents turned to the only other explanation that they were suffering the effects of witchcraft. And isn't that interesting? Like how human beings have such a desire to explain things. It feels like the opposite often happens, or at least in my experience, where if a doctor and medicine can't heal something, it often goes ignored, right? Like I've struggled a lot with this for my health. So much of my food sensitivities, for example, I haven't been able to get answers. I haven't even been able to figure it out myself. And so I end up just silently suffering or feeling frustrated or ignoring it, wondering if something is in my head, right? My sleep issues too, I haven't found a resolution to them. And so if I were living in a different time, would my unexplained symptoms be seen as like something awful like witchcraft, right? Like, In this moment, I'm going to have to reflect on this more because in this moment, I can't think of how we might do something more related to that. But we do certainly cast a lot of judgment on people that we don't understand. And we prosecute them in ways of making them outcasts or we harm people. I mean, if we look at racism, for example, like we treat people differently based on the color of their skin. And it's still happening as much as we want to believe or hope that it isn't. There's still awful crimes happening and marginalized communities in general are still suffering every single day and targeted just because of the way that they look, the communities that they're from. And it's not just a race issue. There's religious, there's ableism, there's homophobia, there's just like on and on people that anybody can put in a bucket as being different, being treated differently, being treated poorly. That's the connection that I can make here is that I think there's like a human tendency to want to explain something so badly that if we can't find an answer, then then we're going to just either ignore somebody or treat them worse because if it's not explainable, then they must have brought it upon themselves or they must have something deeply wrong with them and we have to get rid of it. I mean, also looking at the Holocaust and I'm not an expert on that, but when I summarize it, it's like I see how some people just wanted to rid the world of somebody that was different than them, a group of people that were different than them and the hopes that if we just get rid of them, we can all be the same and we can create more purity. Purity culture was so big in Massachusetts and some ways still is. 
and this desire to try to rid the world of something that scares us is really upsetting when you break it down. So I'm going to go back to the website and see what else I can gather from it, the lessons that I can continue to process. What I'm also finding on this website that's interesting to me is the ripple effect and the length in which the apologies over these witch trials were carried out. And those started in 1697 and have continued to fairly recent times. On here, it documents how a resolution was passed in 1711. Twelve years later, people were pardoned. In 2001, five of the missing names were added to this resolve, formally declaring the innocence of them. And one last name was missed in that resolved. And I guess they still have not formally cleared the name of this woman, Elizabeth Johnson Jr., as of today, which is so interesting, right? Like all this time has passed and we're still learning. We're still apologizing. Like it just kind of shows how things carry on for so long and they might not be right in our face, but they're still a big part of our society. This museum where I'm reading this information from was founded during Salem's push to redevelop its core and market itself as a city of unique historical importance. And it was developed in the 1960s. Public interest in Salem's connection to the witch trials was piqued by the crucible. That was one of the references I was trying to think of earlier. However, fascination with everything related to witches and witchcraft increased dramatically after several episodes of the sitcom Bewitched. Oh, and I didn't realize that show was filmed at various locations throughout Salem. They actually have a statue for Elizabeth Montgomery, who is the star of that show in Salem. There's a big statue of her there. So the museum was founded shortly after that show to educate the public about the 1692 trials. And they're aiming to be the voice of the innocent victims from 1692 to the present day. Wow. And a few more tidbits about Salem from the Salem.org website. They have an FAQ here that I find interesting. Number one, did the Salem witch trials happen in modern day Salem or Danvers, Massachusetts? This is something my friend Elizabeth was sharing with me. The witchcraft hysteria of 1692 happened throughout the region of this area and accusers coming from various different communities. Salem Village is now the town of Danvers, Massachusetts, and some of the sites associated with the trials and hysteria are located there. Salem Town, which is modern-day Salem, is where the trials actually took place, as well as the hangings and the pressing of that one person. That person I'm really interested in, too. Like, why were some people hung or this one person pressed I don't know if this will be on the FAQ page, but that's just horrific. I also thought that some people were burned. You know, in various TV shows and movies about witches, they'll show them being like burned at the stake or something. But I guess that didn't happen with these witch trials. It was just through the hanging. Can you imagine? This is something that I try to wrap my head around and it's so morbid, but living in a time where it was like, the communities would come together to watch things like this. 
It's so disturbing to me. I can't imagine going to a public execution. And that still happens today, I believe. I don't know if anybody can go to them, but we still have the death penalty. And there are those rooms where people can go watch somebody. I don't know if they use the electric chair anymore. I think they inject the prisoners with that. But that's just so awful to me that that still happens. But the death penalty, that's an issue that's still widely debated. And it's a complex thing. Like, does somebody deserve to receive the death penalty? And each state in the U.S. handles it differently. And that's something else I would like to learn about because it's more complex than just making a knee-jerk judgment on it. So going back to the witch trial FAQ, how was the practice of witchcraft viewed in 17th century New England? Under British law, the basis for Massachusetts Bay Colony legal structure in the 17th century, those who were accused of consorting with the devil were considered felons, having committed a crime against their government, and the punishment for such a crime was hanging. What's the difference between afflicted and accused. Afflicted were people who were supposedly possessed and tormented. It was they who accused or cried out the names of those who were, who were supposedly possessing them. Were only women accused of practicing witchcraft? Men were accused as well. Five men were convicted and hanged, and one man, Gills Corey, was pressed to death for refusing to cooperate with the court. I'm still fascinated with that idea of pressing someone to death. Really disturbing. Oh, and I guess there was a practice of swimming a witch used in Europe and in Connecticut, but not in Salem, Massachusetts. So this goes beyond. I mean, that's the other thing. Like other states and countries were also determining people as witches. Oh, and here's the burned at the stake point. Burning at the stake was a punishment for hearsay, a crime against the church in Europe. Witchcraft was a felony in the colonies, a crime against the government. Wow. There you have it. The details about the witch trials. Now, there is more to Salem than that. If you go again to the Salem.org website, there's all sorts of things that happened in the 1700s, like the armed resistance and... The Friendship, which was the name of a boat. And then the Peabody Essex Museum that I mentioned, that was founded in 1799. It's the oldest continually operated museum in the country. Wow. That museum looked really cool. Like It was very modern on the outside and seemed to have some interesting exhibits inside of it. Over time, my interest in history has evolved. I think my road trips have brought it out of me because I go across the country and just wonder like, what happened here? And why are the people like this here? And why do the buildings look like this? And what's the difference between this area and that area? It's fascinating. And so just taking the time to learn a little bit of history can be so enlightening. In the 1800s, one of the big parts of Salem history is the book, The Scarlet Letter, which was published by Nathaniel Hawthorne. And that book is also very interesting. I think I read that in high school. Another novel called The House of the Seven Gables was inspired by a mansion, an actual mansion that has become one of the most famous historical houses in America. I think I walked by that yesterday. The, the buildings in Salem were also quite interesting. 
1877, the first public demonstration of a long-distance phone conversation was held in Salem. Fascinating. And then there's history about the 1900s, right? It's so so interesting when you get to that, you're like, that wasn't that long ago. (laughs) Oh, here, The Haunted Happenings is the name of the time of year that's going on right now. I think that's all of October there. And that started in 1982. So they're celebrating the 40th anniversary. Oh, I didn't even realize that. It's the largest celebration of Halloween in the world. And they welcome more than half a million visitors to parties, parades, vendor fairs, walking tours, museums, attractions, and special events. Wow. I guess I experienced that without even fully recognizing. I knew that like October would be a fun time to go there, but did not realize quite the context. So for example, I saw the Salem Psychics Fair, which was interesting to say the least. I don't know how much was represented in it yesterday, October 5th, but it was inside this witch mall. I forget what that mall is called. It's called like the witch mall or something. And it's this super old, outdated mall with like a few touristy gift shops and restaurants and a really old movie theater. There's parking there. That's why I was even in this mall and just felt so run down. And I was very surprised by it. Like, Out of everything I experienced at Salem, this was like this bizarre, a creepy and an unpleasant, not like a witchy creepy, but like just felt dirty and run down. And there was like the psychic fair in there with all these little tables and psychics sitting around and did not appeal to me because the atmosphere was not very nice. But if you are interested in haunted happenings or any other part of Salem, They have really good websites with guides to the city and all this history that I've been reading. Even Hocus Pocus is listed on (laughs) this website as part of their history. So you can go through and learn all about it. As I mentioned, there's multiple vegan places there. I mean, Life Alive is a staple for me, but there were many other places to choose from. There's even a vegan bakery there that looked really cool. I did not have a chance to go in because they were closed. I highly recommend going there earlier in the day. That was a mistake I made because you'd have more of a chance to experience things before it all closes down. I did go to a nice bookshop, by the way. I think it was called Wicked Good. And that was a phenomenal name because wicked is a word that many of us in Massachusetts use, but it's also perfect for Salem. I wonder what the history of that term wicked is now that I think about it. Like, When I was growing up, that was just a word I would use to describe things like wicked good was a phrase that I actually like trained myself to stop saying because outside of Massachusetts, people would make fun of me for saying wicked good. Uh, (laughs) But yeah, it's kind of funny. I wonder if there's any historical context to the word wicked, word wicked, Massachusetts. Let's see. Maybe like Urban Dictionary will give me an explanation. I mean, it's Boston slang. Oh, here we go. Boston Magazine coming in. Okay. Where did the word wicked come from and who popularized it in Boston and New England? Okay. So somebody wrote in this question and asked like, I grew up saying wicked as a synonym for very or extremely, which clearly means awesome. It's been around forever. So where did it come from? And there is a long answer here, but I'll summarize it here. So it looks like in 1942, 
The former mayor had something to do with it. His campaign was crippled by his torrid affair with Margaret Hamilton, who had the role of the Wicked Witch of the West in The Wizard of Oz. And somebody referred to this mayor as the wicked man has become wicked good and the rest is local slang history. All right, well, (laughs) that's not very exciting. So this person tried to do all this research to find if the use of wicked for good had further context, but it was usually used to describe something as bad and that dates back to the 13th century. And it was in perhaps an alteration of the Middle English Wick or the Old English Wicca. The dictionary's website posits that the modern incarnation may stem from the old practice of crediting an intense quality to a curse or supernatural force. Huh. Okay. Well, one weird rumor is that Salem City officials devised the usage to promote tourism turning the words meaning around to transform the Berg's witch trial reputation. Huh, okay. They also credit it to the Oscar-winning movie Goodwill Hunting. I remember them using that word wicked, Matt Damon and Ben Affleck. <laughs> SNL did some sketches. There's actually a really funny SNL sketch for Dunkin' Donuts, which, you know, is a big Massachusetts staple. So very fascinating. This is just an episode full of Massachusetts history. All that to say, the bookstore Wicked Good was pleasant to visit. There are candy shops there that were also closed. I was kind of sad I didn't get to go in there. I also want to mention the hotels look awesome. And they have camping. Wait a second. It's a little too close for me to justify camping, but there is a park there that apparently can go camping at. So that could be neat too. There's a lot to do. And at the very least, it's just a beautiful little town to walk around. So you don't have to do anything witch hunt related to enjoy this area. Well, with all that said, I hope you enjoyed this slightly Halloween themed episode. If you do celebrate Halloween, do anything fun today or already did it and are listening to this episode after Halloween and you feel like sharing anything, I'd like to hear it. I'd love to hear if you've been to Salem If you are interested in history, do you spend any time in Massachusetts and also start saying wicked? Whatever context, I love hearing from you. So please send me a message via email, via direct message, or via my private community, Beyond Measure. Would love to connect with you more, get to know you, hear your stories too. And all of that information, as well as the full transcript for this, Links to everything I mentioned, all the resources are available at wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. And stay tuned. Lots of great episodes coming up this Friday. The next episode after this is a really interesting one about mother-daughter relationships. And I have many other guests queued up beyond, including next week. So I hope you tune in, subscribe to the show. If you want to give it a rating, by the way, if you go into Apple Podcasts, you can leave a review, you can leave a star rating. That is much appreciated and something I rarely even think to mention. But if you've been enjoying the show beyond connecting with me, giving the show a rating is much appreciated to help other people discover it. And lastly, I love hearing from you 
in terms of getting ideas for future episodes, topics you want me to cover, subject matter, styles, whatever feedback you'd like to give me for this show. I want to hear it. So I hope you have a wicked good rest of your day and I'll be back on Friday. Bye until then. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.